This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. It was that tall. golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about the people and places in our lives that inspire us to love science. For me, that is probably all of you listening right now. So it's appropriate that we would get to experience these stories together, I think. Our first story today is from Latasha Wright. It was recorded in November 2018 at Caveat in New York City as part of a show supported by the Tiffany & Co. Foundation. The theme that night was Urban Oceans. I've always loved the ocean. The sights, the sounds, the tastes. Um, You know, when you can take a deep breath and go, and you have that taste in your mouth. Um, I love that, I love it a lot. Um, I'm from Mississippi. Um, I'm the youngest of five children. Um, I have four rambunctious brothers. Um, And so when we were young and rowdy, um, when we got really excitable, let's just say, my mom and dad would pack us all in the car, just one car, you know, before seatbelts, it's okay. Um, <laughs> we're in Mississippi, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> and take us all to the beach. And my brothers and my dad would put crabbing lines out to catch crabs, and I would just run wild on the beach and go crazy and, uh, you know, kind of, just kind of primal. Um, And I would think about, like, all of the animals in the water, and I would fantasize about them, and I would think about um, what they are doing, or who are they hanging out with. Um, And I was obsessed, obsessed with dolphins. I loved them, I thought they were beautiful, they were smart, and you know, obviously, just like me. Um, so I wanted to be one. And, um, and I wanted to be one so bad that I had a dolphin name. And, and I had, okay, don't tell anybody, this is a total secret. But I had a dolphin name that was a lot of clicks and whistles. And I made my whole family call me by this name. (laughs) So, (laughs) don't tell anybody. I can trust. (laughs) And so then, um, (laughs) that just meant I was going to be a scientist, okay? 
because I was not this flipper crap, you know, like a real thing. And so, fast forward, I did become a scientist, uh, and then, you know, I started working. I came, moved from Mississippi to New York, um, and I learned that, you know, I was on the bench doing real science, real science. And then I decided I didn't really like it, but I like talking about science a lot um, and communicating science. So then I started this working at a science outreach organization called the Biobus. And they, we are, we went to, we basically was a, you know, couple hippies. We got together on this 1974 bus and we just kind of went to schools and we were like, hey guys, come on aboard. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's much more polished now, trust me. Uh, <laughs> Ten years later. Um, and so then, so as we got bigger, you know, we got more, you know, we kind of, you know, you know, stopped wearing tie-dye every day. Um, <laughs> people started taking us seriously, and I got this opportunity to go to Egypt to, yeah, to do a bio boats on the Red Sea. So it was like, you know, have these, um, and it actually, when I first thought about it, it was like, oh, it's going to be like a barge. But when I got there, it was a yacht. And I was like, this is what I deserve. <laughs> so, of course, I had to keep coming back. So it was so horrible. Um, <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure this is right outfit. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna come back, you know. And so we. It was really a lot of hard work, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, don't tell. This is a secret, total secret. Don't tell anybody. And so um, it was like, you know, we outfitted it all, and we were ready. So after three years, you know, I was ready to go back to launch this this boat. So this was really my thing. Um, and then on February 13, 2007, my mom and dad, they woke up together. Um, they had breakfast. And then my mom was like, I'm going to grocery store. And he was like, OK. Um, and then when she came back, my father had passed away. So he, um, she found him um, just laying on the floor because he had had a heart attack. And you, you have to understand, my dad was like this, this person who was never sick, who was always like, whenever you saw him, he was kind of the kind of macho dude-ish kind of guy, you know? And whenever I was like, are you feeling, how are you feeling? He's like... Oh. Yeah, strong as a horse, baby doll, strong as a horse. <laughs> and my mom was the one who was always sick. My mom had cancer twice, you know. Um, she had all of these things. Like in 2005, she was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And at that time, when she was diagnosed, the survival rate was 30%. Um, and so, like, that was 10 years ago. So it was really like everybody was kind of excited that she was like, ex you know, we were all focused on my mom. Um, but I remember getting the call because I was 
uh, in a meeting and my brother called and he never calls and he and he just kept calling because I kept getting dismissed dismissed and then he kept calling so then I was like okay this must be something so I went out and I got the and I was like hello and he was like dad died and for me it was like hitting the head with a sledgehammer right and I was like but I'm going to Egypt to, on Friday. <laughs> and he was, there was a pause from him and from me. And because in my mind, two things couldn't happen at the same time. Like, I couldn't have this great thing that I've been working so hard for and a super great accomplishment in my career and my dad dying. And then he just said, Latasha. And it was like, Oh, you know, and things kind of rearranged themselves in my mind. And I was like, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. And then I just spent the next half an hour um, on the floor of the bathroom crying. And then I'm texting, text my colleagues, and they brought my stuff to the bathroom for me. And then I left. I got home. I made my uh, reservations for Mississippi, and I changed my flights for Egypt from Friday to Monday. Um, and you don't understand, like, this was my first time experiencing loss as an adult, you know? Because, you know, my, grandpa, my grandparents had died when I was a kid, but, you know, it wasn't the same. And I remember thinking very vividly, do people really wear black at a funeral or is this like TV? Um, and so then I threw my black dress, my black shoes in a bag and I you know, went to the airport and I came to Mississippi. Um, and then my brother and my mom were there to pick me up and I remember seeing my mom and my mom was so, looked so fragile. And then immediately things changed in my head. And I was like, okay, my job is, I'm not a daughter here. I'm my mother's support. I'm helping her through this process. And we did all the things that, you know, grieving families do. We went to pick up the casket and found the right, you know, um, flowers and, you know, wrote the obituary and, and all of that kind of things. And there was, we were all together, I have four brothers and they're all married and we all have children, they all have children. So it's tons of people in the house and it's, ton, it's loud and, but there was just a voice missing, you know, because my dad was always the loudest and he wasn't there. And so it was like some vacuum that was missing, you know? And so the day of the funeral, where I get there, again, we're in Mississippi, so let me just say that. So people were saying, my mom, oh, I thought you were going to die first. <laughs> and she's like, me too. <laughs> and so after the funeral, I come back. I fly back to, to New York. Um, and none of my friends and none of my family could understand like, why would I do that? Why wouldn't I, like, take time? Why wouldn't I, like, why did I want to go back to this thing that I had planned? And 
the reason why, I'll just be honest, is that I wanted to be Latasha, not Latasha whose dad just died. I didn't want, you know, I was in the Bible bus, as you can imagine, we're all hippies. They like to hug you and touch you. And I didn't want all the touching and the hugging and all of that. I just wanted to be normal. I wanted to be like, not like it didn't really happen. And so I wanted to go to a place where I could be myself and I could escape this. And my dad didn't die. So I went to Egypt um, and it was amazing. The launch was great. Um, there was a lo- wonderful children. They were all Egyptian. Were, none of them spoke English and I didn't speak any Egyptian, but we communicated through like, ah, look, ooh, ah, ah, you know, <laughs> universal language of science. Um, <laughs> pointing and, and going like this. Um, <laughs> so we did a bunch of plankton toes. It was amazing. And then we also did the universal language of selfies. Um, so we took tons of selfies. So at the end of the day, we went to the back of the boat because that was prime selfie place. Um, and there was this pot of dolphins that was playing in the wake. There were adolescents, there were moms and dads and and just babies just doing their thing. And they were so beautiful. And I was with all of these wonderful kids who had, you know, had such a great time. And we saw this pot of dolphins and it felt like family. That was Latasha Wright. Latasha is a molecular biologist who in 2011 joined the crew of the BioBus, a mobile science lab dedicated to bringing hands-on science and inspiration to students from all socioeconomic backgrounds. In 2014, the BioBus team launched an immersive, unintimidating laboratory space called the BioBase. Latasha has led the efforts in establishing this community laboratory model and hopes to build on its success in other communities. The efforts of the BioBuses team to promote science education to all communities in New York City have been recognized by numerous news outlets, including WNYC's science radio program, Hypothesis. And Latasha herself has been featured as New York One's New Yorker of the Week. Misha here. If you enjoy our episodes on career pathways in healthcare or the STEM field at large, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you, Raising Health. Previously called BioEats World, Raising Health comes from leading venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, the same team behind the acclaimed A16Z podcast. Each episode, Raising Health dives deep into the heart of healthcare, biotech, and AI with venture capital investors and A16Z general partners. Along the way, they explore the real challenges and opportunities in health and biotech entrepreneurship. So whether you're interested in building a new digital healthcare company or your company is advancing a new novel medicine, Raising Health sheds light on some of the opportunities and obstacles along the founder's journey. Not to mention, you'll hear raw insights, actionable advice from notable guests like Omada CEO and co-founder Sean Duffy and AI expert and Incitro CEO Daphne Kohler. Don't miss out. Follow Raising Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them I sent you. Our next story today is from Sheena Cruikshank. It was recorded in December 2018 at the Birdcage in Manchester, UK. This show was produced in partnership with the University of Manchester, and the theme that night was Divergence. 
One of the funniest things I ever saw was my teenage brother Ian trying to catch a flatfish with his bare hands. He was standing in a rock pool and he'd rolled his trousers all the way up his legs and he was frantically trying to catch something that was basically invisible and moved like a streak of lightning. He had absolutely no chance. And within minutes, he was flat on his back, soaked. And I stood at the edge, laughing, as you do. I was about seven or eight at the time, and my brother had taken me to the beach to go rock pulling because he was mad about marine biology. He was absolutely fascinated by it. And we happened to live about a mile or so from the beach. So we would walk down to the beach, and I probably moaned, and I was probably a pain, but he put up with me. And we would get to the beach, and he would explain everything that was in the rock pools with so much detail. He'd tell me about the creatures that were living there, how they lived, how beautiful they were, everything about them. And we even had a tank set up at home. And that tank enabled us to take some of these things home with us so we could study them even more. And he could explain even more about their lifestyles. We had blennies and guppies. We had velvet crabs and sea anemones. And my favorite things, and I think this has dropped very slightly, <laughs> were the velvet crabs. But not the velvet crabs, they were the hermit crabs. We had two hermit crabs. And the reason I liked them so much was because they looked exactly like a normal shell, but then these little legs and claws would appear and they'd scuttle away. And I just thought that was brilliant. One day we came down to look at the tank and there was only one hermit crab and an empty shell. Ian explained that what must have happened is that the hermit crab had outgrown its shell and it had removed the shell that it was inside and gone to look for another one. Now in a rock pool, there'll be lots and lots of shells around, so it could have easily found one. But of course in our tank, there were no shells around and there were hungry fish. So hermit crab became fish food. I was gutted. I didn't want this to happen again to our other hermit crab, and neither did Ian. So we had to do hermit crab rescue mission really rapidly. And we went back to the beach to find some shells that we thought might be just suitable for our hermit crab to move into. We set up a second tank, and we popped the hermit crab in it with our array of shells and some tasty, tempting morsels of chopped up earthworm. They like those. After a while, something came out of the shell, and it was so weird. It was kind of pinky, fleshy colored. And if I'd seen Alien, but I hadn't at the time, because I was way too young, I think that would have been my reference point, because it kind of curved round like the head of Alien in a kind of domed way. And it made its way and investigated the shells until it found the shell that it wanted, and it popped it on, and it disappeared. And we had saved the hermit crab, and my love of biology was sealed. I was going to become a biologist just like Ian. I was so excited. Now, we kept that tank up all the way through my primary school and his high school. But when it came for me to go to high school, Ian went off to university to study marine biology. We come from the very remote 
part of the Highlands, so he couldn't be anywhere near us for his studies. He was in a city about six to seven hours away, so I didn't see him so often once he went to university. He kept in touch, told me what he was doing, very typical student stuff, gigs, beer, girls, more girls. He was having a great time. And he came up one holiday, and he showed us something on his arm. He had this lump on his arm. And Ian, being Ian, he gave it a name and talked about it in the third person. I thought it was really cool. I wanted a lump like Ian's. But of course, he had to get it investigated. So he got it biopsied. It was cancer. Ian had cancer. And this meant that he was going to have to get the lump removed and he was going to have to have some treatment. And he couldn't have that where we lived because we didn't have those hospitals but he could have it where he was studying at university. So mum and dad did the journeys to go and be with him. And I was shipped around from house to house. I stayed in a succession of my parents' friends. In fact, I stayed at one house so often that the owner actually talked about doing up the spare room for me to make it girly, because she thought I'd like that. I really didn't care. I was pretty confused. I didn't really know what was going on with Ian. Mum and Dad didn't tell me very much. Ian's tumour kept coming back. He kept having rounds of surgery and chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And Mum and Dad just looked tense and grim all the time. I was scared. And I also felt that I really needed to be just quiet and really good because I couldn't do anything to upset them anymore. They were under so much pressure. So I was very withdrawn. I think I kept myself very much to myself so that nobody really noticed me. Ian kept up with the girls, amazingly, through all this therapy and his studies. And he was so pleased when he could actually start growing his hair back. Because you can imagine, he was about 19 or 20 at this point. Although he was still tall and good-looking, he was very thin, he was very pale. He had scars all the way up his arm and all the way down his leg where he did surgery and skin grafts to repair the wounds. And he was bald. And I think that was the bit that annoyed him the most because he wanted to have a cool haircut and wear nice clothes. We really didn't have many fashion shops back in the Highlands where I came from. So this was, you know, something pretty aspirational for us. So he was delighted when he had a break in his chemotherapy and his hair grew back and he could finally grow it and cut it and style it. And he came up at Christmas to show us his new look and he was so chuffed, he was really pleased. And we all sat down at dinner and were chatting. And I noticed something on the side of his head. And I don't know why, but I said, Ian, what's that? And Ian reached up and he pulled. It was his hair. It was a large chunk of his hair. And he screamed and he cried. And he pulled out more of his hair and more of his hair. And I just felt like such a bitch. I couldn't believe I'd been so insensitive. I really wish I hadn't said it. I know I was only about 13, but I really didn't feel like an excuse. 
He distracted himself from all this therapy by getting some pet gerbils. He had one brown gerbil and one white gerbil, an albino. They were supposed to be males. They weren't. Gerbils breed really, really fast. But this was an opportunity now for Ian to start teaching me about genetics. And it seemed way more exciting to see cute, fluffy animals than read about pea plants in a book. So the albino gene was clearly recessive, and we could see the one in four chance of getting albinism through the gerbils. Interestingly, also, the male albinos had a balance problem, and they'd sway like this. But the female albinos never had it. So we could construct an idea that maybe this was both linked to being an albino, but it might be on the Y chromosome. Obviously, we'd need a lot more gerbils to test that, and we weren't about to test that. Ian kept his studies up and got an ordinary degree in marine biology. But just after his 21st birthday, he came back to live with us. I didn't know that it was because he'd just been given a few months to live. And I'm not sure he knew that either. I was just 14 when Ian died. And that whole period that he was sick was one of the hardest things I've ever been through. And I was so mad. I was so confused. I didn't know what was happening for that whole time. I couldn't understand why his body didn't reject the tumor, why his immune system didn't fight back. What was going on? Why did the chemotherapies not work? And why did his hair fall out? I was also hearing about AIDS, which was another disease where your immune system didn't seem to be working. Why was that happening? I had no reference point to find out about immunology at all in my high school studies. So I began to get really curious about this idea of studying immunology. And this took my parents rather by surprise. Because as I investigated the courses for immunology, it dawned on me that this was such a new subject, or considered so at the time, that there was very limited options to do it. And I was going to have to do a joint honours degree, i.e. double the work. And I wasn't a particularly diligent student. And I wasn't top at science. In fact, I was quite musical. So I think mum and dad thought I might go and do that. But I was fairly determined I was going to go and study immunology, even if it was going to be double the work. They were terrified that it was just because I was trying to live out Ian's ambitions of being a scientist and a researcher. I brushed this aside. They were also terrified that it was because he was sick. They may have had a point there, but I wasn't about to tell them that. So I went to university, miles away from home again. And I loved it. I loved it when we did the immunology. I'll be honest, I didn't like the other joint honours part so much, but I loved the immunology and I knew it was the right thing for me. I liked all the scientists that I was mixing with, hearing about all the different experiences, but I also liked the fact that most of my flatmates were humanities students. And although it kind of pissed me off that they only had three lectures and I had 15, <laughs> 
I still really enjoyed hearing about their courses, hearing about what they were doing. I loved hearing about it. It reminded me of all the things I was interested in. And I couldn't work out why they didn't love hearing about my course. They didn't want to know anything about immunology. They said, science is too hard. It's not for them. It's just for geeks. And I thought, well, that's not right. Science is so beautiful. It's everywhere. It's all around us. It's part of us. And then I realized they didn't have Ian. I'd had Ian telling me, spending hours with me, telling me all these wonderful stories about science, getting me excited about science. And I knew that I'd been so lucky having that. And I think that was the point that I realized that I would be really keen to do science communication as well. Now, it's a long time, a very long time, since I was a student. And I'm really lucky because I have my own immunology lab and I'm doing the research that I love. And I do science communication too through my public engagement work. So I'm really lucky that I've got to live that dream. I also got rock pulling again now, but with my children. And I've been that person flailing around in a rock pool up to my waist in water, trying desperately to find something cool for them to see. And you know what? No matter what I do, I will always find them a hermit crab. Thank you. That was Sheena Cruikshank. Sheena is an immunologist at the University of Manchester and also the university academic lead for public engagement. In addition to this, she is the public engagement secretary and a trustee for the British Society for Immunology. Her research aims to understand how the immune response distinguishes what is good, like the friendly bacteria that live in and on us, from what is bad, like parasitic infection. She is really interested in developing biomarkers as tools that can help with patient diagnosis and patient care. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Nissa Greenberg, Tracy Rowland, me, Aaron Barker, and Fiona Calvert. The podcast is produced by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and the Birdcage for hosting these shows and to everyone who has had the patience and the passion to inspire another person to love science. Thanks for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.